be saved to sin no more. That will be a glorious day when the Lord promotes his people to glory. Amen. I just want to encourage God's people when we sing every Sunday, we're singing for the glory of God, are we not? And when it comes to one Sunday per month, which is this Sunday, which is Hymnal Sunday, we sing hymns in a cappella. And when you listen to God's people sing, it's just glorious. And Pastor Ed, thank you for leading us in worship, and thank you for singing for God's glory. I've said this many times, that I believe that I was born in the wrong generation. The generation that we live in today, most young Christians don't know anything about hymns. God's people, we should, we should never forget the hymns of old. Because the hymns of old have brought the saints of old to the throne of God through great despair, tragedy, trials, and tribulation because God is real and Christ is on the throne. We should never forget that. Let me pray for us and we'll get started here. Father, we have gathered together in this place to honor and worship you, to worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask you, O Lord, to honor us with your presence, that you would fill us with your spirit, that your spirit would point us to the beauty and the majesty and the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, be with us now. Help your servant to be faithful to your word. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. How much does forgiveness cost? Have you ever thought about that question? One Christian answered this question this way, and he makes a distinction between forgiveness of a parent to a child versus God to his children. And he says it like this, quote, There is one eternal principle which will be valid as long as the world lasts. The principle is forgiveness is a costly thing. Human forgiveness is costly. A son or a daughter may go wrong. A father or a mother may forgive, but that forgiveness has brought many tears. There was a price of a broken heart to pay. And then he contrasts, and he says this about divine forgiveness. Divine forgiveness is costly. God is love, but God is holy. Sin must have its punishment, or the very structure of life dis disintegrates. And God alone can pay the terrible price that is necessary before men can be forgiven. Forgiveness is never a case of saying, it's all right. It doesn't matter. Forgiveness is the most costly thing in the entire world. The main point that I want to get across today, and this is in your bulletin, is humanity's primary need is God's forgiveness, not physical healing. Again, humanity's primary need is God's forgiveness, not physical healing. We're in Luke chapter 5, entitled The Power to Forgive. And the background to this text that we're about to get into is it starts really in verse 17. Jesus has this leper, and he was teaching, and now this leper is healed. And now we deal with a paralytic and when Jesus teaches many times he is teaching doctrine biblical doctrine he's 
teaching the way to God, which is salvation. And it says that when Jesus was preaching or teaching, he doesn't teach like a normal teacher. He doesn't preach like a normal preacher. He teaches as one who has authority, not like one of the scribes. That's Matthew 7, 29. And when Jesus teaches, he draws a crowd. He attracts a crowd. And in this case, he addresses or attracts Pharisees. He attracts teachers of the law, which are scribes many times. And these Pharisees and teachers of the law came from, as we see in the text, Galilee, Judea. And from Jerusalem. If we understand Luke chapter 5 correctly, it says that Jesus is located by the Sea of Galilee. He's up in the northern part of the region. We see that in verse 1. And if Jesus is in one of those cities up in the north, that means that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had come a very long distance to see Jesus, to hear Jesus, and to witness the miracles of Jesus. As the crow flies, Many of these people came 50 to 60 miles away by foot or by donkey. That, in those times, that's a long distance. But Pharisees were very influential, influential members of society. They were influential in regards to politics. They were influential in regards to religion. They were the who's who of Jesus' time. And the Pharisees were strict. They were zealous about many things, especially when it comes to the Old Testament law, such as angels. Pharisees believed in angels. They also believed in the bodily resurrection, that the body would be raised again. According to Josephus, which is a famous Jewish historian at that time, he estimated that there were over 6,000 Pharisees present in that region. Well, in our text today, it doesn't say exactly how many Pharisees were present in this house, but we could assume safely that there were probably hundreds. But verse 17 also describes another group of people, not only Pharisees, but other influential people. These people are called teachers of the law. These were scribes or professional copyists. These were men who were skilled in interpreting the Mosaic law. These were experts on the Old Testament law. So we have quite a bit of people in this scene, in this text that we're about to address. Hundreds, maybe thousands of people. And at the end of verse 17, I want to bring our attention to this. Because this is, verse 17 sets up this entire text. And it says this at the end of verse 17. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. This is crucial for about what we're going to go into. The writer, Luke, makes it very clear that Jesus has the power to heal. It doesn't say the apostles have the power to heal. It doesn't say that any disciple has the power to heal the writer is very clear that Jesus has the power to heal. In other words, this is a reference to an Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah would come and redeem and heal his people. So Jesus has the power to heal physical sicknesses and diseases, which he's done in the Gospels. 
But remember, the focus is on Jesus. It's all about Jesus. When you read the Bible and you think of other people that should receive the emphasis or the focus, you're not reading the Bible correctly many times. It's all about Jesus. This is reminiscent of Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, which we've covered in the past. But in Luke chapter 4, 18 and 19, it's really quoting Isaiah. Isaiah 61, chapter 61, and Isaiah chapter 58. And this is what Luke 18 says, And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Who does that refer to? Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. Who does that sound like? And to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Who does that sound like? That sounds exactly like Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus is the promised one, and he has healed, and he continues to heal in the gospel accounts. But we need to be mindful that Jesus' primary ministry is not simply to heal. Jesus' primary ministry is to save those who are lost. Jesus' primary ministry is salvation. But before we get there, we have a problem. Actually, this group of people has a problem starting in verse 18. And it says this, And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. The text doesn't say how many people were in this group. But what we do know, it's a small group of men who are carrying an invalid. To be exact, a paralyzed man. This man may be a friend of this small group or a relative of this small group, and they're carrying him on a cot or maybe a stretcher. And their goal is to get to Jesus. I think we understand the word paralyzed. We understand when we see a person maybe out in public who's in a wheelchair. The upper body works. They're paralyzed from the waist down, but their upper body is strong enough to push themselves or push the wheels to get from point A to point B. We understand what paralysis looks like. But in this case of this man, it's clear that at least his legs from the waist down are paralyzed. He could be paralyzed from the neck down. The text doesn't say. But it's visible. It's visible to the human eye that this person is paralyzed. We have seen paralyzed people i'm sure we have out in public we had a brother with us brother david lavelle some of you remember him he used to wheel himself into this church for many many years he's a good dear brother who's now moved into the arizona area if you shake brother david's hand his hand he has the strength of an ox this man is so strong i was surprised to hear that he goes hunting in a wheelchair that's in my mind how do you do that How do you go hunting in a wheelchair? But if you look at his legs, his legs are very small. They're atrophied. They're weak. So we understand what a paralyzed person looks like. 
And it's clear that this man, whoever he is, is desperate. He's been paralyzed for so long that he wants to get to Jesus. And he's convinced this group of men, please take me to Jesus. That's what's implied. He's heard about the stories of Jesus. He hears that Jesus is in the area. He's heard that Jesus can heal people. Maybe Jesus can heal me. Talking about the paralyzed man. But one thing is for sure, this group of men are committed. They are not 99% committed to get to Jesus. They are 100% committed to get to Jesus. The problem is everybody else wants to hear and see Jesus, and they're in the way. There's too many people in the house. And so they can't get through the front door because of this massive crowd. Most people at this point, they would just quit. They would turn around, take a number, and come back another day. Not this group. They did not get distracted. They did not get discouraged. They did not get unfocused. They are determined to get to Jesus. At this time, in, in the land of Israel, houses were made or covered by weeds or branches or even mud. These houses would have, many times, external stairs from the outside, not from the inside, that would go up to the roof. And this particular house has roof tiles. So they have spent the energy and the sacrifice to get to Jesus. They're not discouraged by the crowd. They get up to the roof somehow. They take off the roof tiles, and now they're about to lower this person in front of this massive crowd, in front of Jesus. I don't understand how you do that, but somehow they're able to lower the body of this paralytic to the floor inside the house before Jesus. And so now we have this scene of this paralyzed man right in front of Jesus. And if you can imagine, the crowd is shocked. The crowd is wondering what is going on. You have hundreds of Pharisees, the influential people of the time. You have scribes who are teachers of the law. You probably have general, a general audience with them as well. And this paralytic is right in front of Jesus. And the question now becomes, what will Jesus do? Everybody is waiting. And here's the resolution in verse 20. Verse 20 says this, And when he, referring to Jesus, saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. When Jesus sees not his faith, referring to one person, the paralytic. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he's talking about, the text is talking about this group of men, including the paralytic. Everybody in this group, whoever they are, 100% committed to get to Jesus, and they believe that Jesus is the only answer to the current problem. And Jesus sees the faith of this entire group. And he says, man... Obviously, in 2023, you say, man, that's cool language, right? You're cool. But man, at that time, means friend. Friend. Your sins are forgiven you. Jesus looks at this man directly, and he says, your sins are forgiven you. See, remember, the goal of this group is to get to Jesus, to be healed. And if you can imagine the shock of this group, 
They are not looking for salvation. They are not looking for forgiveness. They are not looking for the Christ or the Messiah. They are looking to get to Jesus for one thing, and that is to be physically healed of the paralysis. And Jesus says something that is completely shocking. He says, your sins are forgiven you. What they're expecting to hear Jesus to say is, man, rise up and walk. That's what they're expecting to hear. They're not looking for forgiveness. So the word faith in this verse, in this context, is a complete trust and reliance that Jesus is going to heal this person physically. It has nothing to do with spiritual side of things. It has nothing to do with salvation. That's what the word faith means in this context. And so because of what Jesus has said, which is contrary to conventional wisdom, the Pharisees and the scribes, the who's who, wants to challenge Jesus now. They argue against Jesus because they did not like what he had to say. Because in verse 21, it says this, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? For the Pharisees, who are of a religious nature, and the scribes, who are the teachers of the law, again, fall into the category of religion. To them, to hear that language reach their ears is blasphemy. Why? It's, it's a serious insult because in their mind, the only person that can forgive sinners of their sin is God. And for them, this is a serious insult. For Pharisees and the religious people of that time, to be forgiven according to Old Testament law is to bring a sacrifice to where? To the temple. And then this sacrifice is offered on the altar, and then the priest declares this person forgiven. Jesus does not do any of that. As a matter of fact, Jesus is 60 miles away from the temple. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is claiming deity. Jesus is God. And because Jesus is God, they don't like what Jesus says, and they are offended. It's insulting to them. What these Pharisees and teachers of the law have actually done is they misidentified Jesus. They misidentified Jesus. All they see Jesus is a wonderful teacher, a good moral man, and possibly a modern-day healer. They don't look any further than that. But Jesus is more than that. Jesus is the promised Old Testament Messiah. He's the New Testament Christ. What they're looking for, they can't really see because they're blinded by their own religiosity. You know, you could be religious all you want to be, and you could still be blind to Jesus. You could be a good moral person and do a lot of good works and good deeds, even in Jesus' name, and still be blind to the true identity of Jesus. But Jesus is claiming to be the holy God. That's what's implied. And these Pharisees and Sadducees hate that. If he's a healer, great. 
But if he's God, no go. Which leads us to verse 22. The power to forgive and to heal. Read with me in verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So according to this verse, these questions, these objections that they have against Jesus were not public. They were not verbally stated. These Pharisees and Sadducees, or Pharisees and teachers of the law, the scribes, were saying these things in their own heart. This was within their own mind. And what does this say about Jesus? That Jesus can comprehend, understand, and perceive the thoughts, the private thoughts of people. Why? Because he's the God-man. He's the Savior. They were questioning Jesus in their own private hearts, but Jesus knows exactly what's going on in their hearts. And consequently, Jesus turns the tables on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He asks them two reflective questions. He's trying to get them to think properly. And here are the two questions. Why do you question in your hearts? Again, that's private and internal. And then the second question is this. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? The Pharisees and the scribes wanted Jesus to say, just be healed, rise and walk. Not that your sins are forgiven. That's not what they were expecting. In one sense... It's easier to declare sins are forgiven because one does not have to see it visibly, unlike a paralytic who needs to walk. It's easier to say in one sense, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because those sins are internal. They're private. They're hidden from your best friend. Obviously, the Lord knows about it. It's more difficult, in one sense, to see a paralytic walk Why? Because we see what a paralytic looks like. But in another sense, it's harder and more difficult to say your sins are forgiven because for this to be true, the person who says it has to have the authority to forgive sins. He has to have the authority to forgive the sins of people. And Jesus does something For this man, which is one of the greatest gifts that a person could ever receive. Jesus connects healing the body, this paralytic body, to forgiveness of sins in one. This paralytic man receives the best of both worlds, so to speak. He's healed and he's forgiven by Christ. Pay attention to what Jesus says here in Luke 5, verse 24. It says this, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, 
pick up your bed and go home. Jesus is addressing this entire crowd. He's addressing the who's who. He's addressing the professional religious person. And Jesus uses a title. I would add his favorite title to describe himself. The Son of Man. The Son of Man. That title that he uses to describe himself is found in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. That's Jesus' favorite title of himself. In Daniel 7, verse 13, it says, Like a son of man. This is referring to a human being. But if you understand the language of Daniel 7, there's this imagery of a person who is of God, fully God, and of man, fully man, in one person. And Jesus, in our account, doesn't go into full detail. He doesn't give all the the details or the background of Daniel chapter 7. But he uses this title of the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, there's this other language. Ancient of Days. We sing that song, Ancient of Days. And that Ancient of Days language is referring to God. God the Father who is sovereign, who's all-powerful, who will accomplish his good, perfect will and purposes in the world. But then you have this son of man who approaches this ancient of days in Daniel chapter 7. But the son of man, basically what's happening is the ancient of days, God the Father, is giving God the Son, Jesus Christ, the son of man, all glory and honor and praise. He's giving him a kingdom that will never end. And he is worthy. The Son of Man is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. So, when Jesus uses this language, what he's referring to is, you don't realize who I am. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm about to do something that you've never seen before. You've probably seen some healings here and there, But what you haven't seen is healing and forgiveness put together. That's what Jesus is saying. Ultimately, the Son of Man refers to Christ. So who fulfills this description? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Only Jesus has the authority to heal. Only Jesus has the authority to forgive. And so Jesus forgives this man which is amazing. This is mind-boggling. These people are not asking for forgiveness, but Jesus gives them forgiveness. Jesus is the one who pardons this paralytic of his sins. Jesus is the one who removes the guilt of this paralytic's sins. Jesus is the one who forgives this paralytic of all his sins. And so we may be asking, what is sin? Sin is a violation of God's law and God's will. That's what sin is. God tells us to do this, and we don't do it. That's sin. God tells us don't do this, and we do it. That's sin. It's a violation of God's law and God's will. It's to engage in wrongdoing. And the Bible's very clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That applies to you, and that applies to me. But how is forgiveness possible? 
If God truly is holy, the biggest question, the biggest mystery, the biggest dilemma in the Old Testament is how does a holy God forgive wicked, sinful people? Answer, the God-man, Jesus Christ. That's the only way that God can forgive sinners is through Jesus Christ. And only God can forgive. That's the idea here in this text. Only God can forgive. But then if Jesus forgives, what is Jesus actually saying? Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God. And because of that, Jesus can forgive. He has the power to forgive. He has the authority to forgive. The question for us today is this. Are you forgiven or are you not? And if you are forgiven, what did it cost for you to be forgiven? Because there's only one true forgiveness that the Bible talks about. And it's through his son. Matthew 26, 28 says this. Matthew 26, 28. Jesus says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's hours before Jesus is about to be arrested and go through an illegal court proceeding, scourged and then crucified. And Judas Iscariot betrays our Savior for 30 pieces of silver. In this text, Jesus institutes what's called the Lord's Supper, or we would call it communion as well. And after eating, Jesus took the bread he blessed it, broke it, and said, Take, eat, for this is my body. And right after that, Jesus takes the cup, the cup of wine, gives thanks, gives it to the disciples, and says, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. There is so much to say right there. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, when there was sin by God's people, for God to overlook, if I could say that language, the sin of his people, there needed to be atonement. There needed to be a covering of that sin. And what was symbolized was through the blood of an animal, a sacrificial animal. It couldn't be any animal. You could not have a dove or a pigeon with a broken wing and a broken leg and offer that up on the altar to God. That is unacceptable. The animal, the sacrificial animal, had to be without blemish or spot and perfect in function and form. That is the only animal that is acceptable that the priest of the Old Testament in Jerusalem is supposed to accept and receive on behalf of the sinner or the group of people. So without a sacrifice, there is no forgiveness. That's the point. So if the Old Testament people of God violated their commitment to God or violated their covenant or their promise to God, then there would be what's called covenantal curses upon God's people. If you obey God's people, you will be blessed by me. If you disobey God's people, then you will be cursed by me. There is consequences to disobedience. And so the idea is where there is sin, 
there must be death, which requires blood of an innocent sacrifice. That's the idea of the Old Testament sacrificial system. The problem in the Old Testament is that the sacrificial system was used and abused. You could be religious and have a priest offer a sacrificial animal, but your heart was far from the sacrifice. In other words, your heart was cold as ice and hard as a rock, and it didn't matter. But I'll go through this empty, dead tradition, this religious tradition, to go through the motions and look like I'm forgiven, but in reality, not forgiven at all. They've used and abused the old sacrificial system. The old sacrificial system was empty of any substance. It was powerless to forgive of any sins. But in reality, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament pointed to the perfect sacrifice in the future, in the New Testament, Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ is the only sacrifice that God will accept on behalf of a sinner. Why? Because Jesus is perfect. Jesus is without sin. That's what Hebrews 4.15 says. He was tempted like we were tempted, yet without sin. Three of the greatest words of the entire New Testament. I would argue of the entire Bible. He was tempted like you and I are tempted to sin, to lie against God, to be jealous, to murder people with hate in our heart, to put idols before God. He was tempted yet without sin. Jesus had no sin. We are the people who have sin. So when we come to this idea, biblical idea of salvation, and people say, well, I brought something to the table so that God would forgive me. That's true. You brought your sin to the table. And that's all you brought to the table. You have no room for negotiation. You have no room for compromise. You have no room for a backdoor deal like our politicians do. There is no room for compromise. Because God takes sin seriously, therefore Christ has to be perfect. He's the perfect sacrifice on behalf of sinners. But if you contrast the Old Testament sacrificial system with what the New Covenant says, especially in Jeremiah 31, 31, there's a New Covenant that is based or inaugurated on a better promise. And it's based off of the sacrifice of Jesus. And because of the sacrifice of Jesus, those who believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior is guaranteed forgiveness. Because that supersedes the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. It's belief in Jesus Christ, which guarantees forgiveness of sins by God for those who repent and trust in him. The blood of bulls and goats can never remove sin. You know, we live in 2023. We understand if you are of the social media type or you've been keeping your eyes open and watching the world, we understand what religion looks like. Religion, if I may define it, is like this. Us who are sinners, but not really sinners. We've kind of rationalized sin away in many churches today. And we work our way up this corporate ladder or this rope. And I'm pulling myself out of the dregs of sin 
up to God and God should forgive me. Why? Because I'm a good person. Look how hard I worked to get to heaven, to the gate of heaven. God forgive me. That is unbiblical, highly popular and famous, but highly and 100% unbiblical. It's unbiblical. Biblical salvation is God's grace coming down to man, not us working ourselves up to God. That's what this paralytic received. So the blood of bulls and goats can never remove sins. But what's beautiful about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, at the end of that verse, 31, 34, Jeremiah 31, 34 says this, For I will forgive their iniquity. This is the Lord speaking. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That is glorious. That is beautiful. How many times have we sinned against God We violated God's law. We know it's sin. And we try to clean ourselves up. And we say things like this. When I'm good and ready, I'll go to Jesus. When I'm good and ready, you will never be good and ready. What if Jesus requires your life tonight? Then what are you going to say then? If you don't come now, you will never be ready. But the Lord says, I will forgive their iniquity. He doesn't say, I might or maybe. He says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is the God who created us. This is the God who created Israel. He says, I'm going to forgive them. Not based off of the blood of Old Testament sacrifices that could never remove sin, but the perfect sacrifice in the blood of my son, Jesus Christ. That's how people are forgiven. That's how God forgives. So as Bible-believing Christians, when we ask the question, how much does forgiveness cost? We must say with one voice, it is absolutely costly because it takes the blood of my Savior to forgive me by faith in Him. The blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of God is costly. So when Jesus says in Matthew 28, or 26, 28, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin, Jesus is saying, God's forgiveness is through my blood. God's forgiveness is through my sacrifice. It's the one who believes unto me, Jesus, for salvation. No other person has done that. Who else can claim that in human history? Who else can heal the body physically? Can you imagine if a person is paralytic from the waist down and their legs are atrophied, Jesus says, you're healed, and muscles grow on the legs. Do you understand that? For a person to stand up who's never stood up for many, many years, who's never walked, much less run, you have to have muscle on your legs. And all of a sudden, this man is forgiven. He is healed and he is forgiven because of Jesus. Not through anybody else's blood. 
not through anybody else's work. What ruler, what religious leader could say, I bled and died so that my people could be forgiven? No one can claim that except Jesus. So the question for us in this room today is this. Are you forgiven? And if you're God's people, we say with one voice, I am forgiven because of Jesus, my Savior. That's it. If you're not forgiven, you need to come to grips with this question. You need to figure out if you're forgiven or not. You might not live till tomorrow. And the call to you is to repent and trust in Jesus. Quit living for yourself. You may be saying, I wasn't looking for salvation today, Pastor Ola. I just wanted to hear a good message. This is God's grace coming to you. This is how God works. You need to repent and trust in the Lord. He's your only hope of salvation. Verse 24. To prove without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus, who is the Son of Man, he says this in verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus personally addresses this man, and he says to him, rise, pick up your bed, and go to your house. Go home to your family. That's amazing. It's amazing. Grace came down to this man, to this paralytic man. This is known in scholarly circles as the divine passive. In other words, this paralytic man did do the miracle. He actually was the one who received the miracle. In other words, God forgave this man in spite of this man. God blessed this man with salvation through Jesus Christ in spite of this man. And so this paralytic, he doesn't claim it. He doesn't name it and claim it, right? He doesn't claim a healing or a miracle. He just waits quietly submissively, patiently, reverently before the Lord, waiting for the Lord to have mercy upon him. He's humble. The question is, will Jesus have mercy upon him? And the answer is a resounding yes. Jesus has mercy on sinners. And Jesus proves he is who he says he is. Jesus has the power to heal. Jesus has the power to forgive. But again, I want to remind us, the focus is forgiveness. The focus of Jesus' ministry is salvation. But in this case today, this man gets the best of both worlds. He's healed and he's forgiven, all in one. He wasn't looking for grace. Grace came down to him. He wasn't looking for salvation. Salvation came to him. He wasn't looking for any of that, but yet that's how God works. So how are sinners saved? How are sinners saved? Salvation is from the Lord. 
by the Lord and through the Lord. It, salvation is all of God in Christ. Sinners are saved from the wrath of God by God in Christ. What we deserve is judgment. What this paralytic deserves is judgment. But God spares this paralytic from judgment and gives him grace. See, grace is amazing if you don't work for it. But if you work to be forgiven, then it's no longer grace. You receive your wage. We understand wages. We clock in, we clock out. You work one hour, you get paid 10 bucks. That's a wage, that's not a gift. Grace is only grace if God gives favor to the sinner. This is amazing grace. This is sovereign grace. This is saving grace. And how did the former paralytic respond? Look at verse 25. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. This man was instantly healed. This man instantly stood up. This man immediately picked up his cot. And he went home to his family with great joy. He was doing what God created him to do, is to worship and glorify God, his maker. God gave him salvation through Jesus, the Son, the Son of Man, who is God. Great joy. Do you see this man wasn't waiting 48 to 72 hours to see if the antidote would work? He was healed instantly and immediately. How come modern-day healers, so to speak, on TBN and YouTube can only heal stuff that none of us can see? They can heal the person from the inside, so to speak, of the allergies. We can't see allergies. They can see, they, they, they heal the person of cancer. We can't see cancer on the inside. This man is healed of a brain hemorrhage, so to speak. You can't see internal bleeding. But yet this paralytic, we could see it with our own eyes. They saw it with their own eyes. When you see a paralyzed person, it is distinct, observable, and real. And all of a sudden, this man is healed and muscle grows on his legs because he has to stand up and walk. And he's forgiven, which is the greatest blessing right there. He's forgiven. Question. Question. Which is better? To be healed of all physical infirmities and not forgiven by God through Christ and ended up in hell? Or to be forgiven by God through Christ of all sins and live with cancer till they die in this life. Which is better? What's better is to be forgiven by God in Christ. But for this man, he got the best of both worlds. He was praising God, glorifying God. He was healed, and there was great joy. And how did the group respond in verse 26? And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and they were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. The entire crowd witnessed a miracle that comes from God and God alone. And they were seized or captivated 
by this miracle. If all of us were in a room and we saw a paralytic grow muscle on their leg, I believe, trust me, we will all be shocked. And they were astonished and amazed. They were filled with awe. They praised the Lord. They had great respect for God as king because God is great. They said, we have seen unusual, incredible, and strange things. And we all say amen to that. When God gives grace, he gives grace. And when sinners are forgiven, they are forgiven because of Christ, the blood of Christ. I'm sure most of you have heard this in the past. But it's worth noting, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. But our greatest need was forgiveness, so God sent us a Savior. I hope we understand that, that our greatest need is not necessarily physical. It's better to go through the gates of heaven with one eye and one leg and be forgiven of all our sins than the opposite of that. But our greatest need is forgiveness, so God gave us his son, our Savior. What does a Savior do? A Savior saves. A Savior saves from sin, from hell, from death, from judgment. And we praise God for that. We praise God for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's hope for you if you're not a Christian, if you'll repent and trust in Jesus. The question is, will you repent and trust in Jesus? For us who know the Lord, how will we respond? We could respond like the Pharisees and teachers and say, who is this Jesus who speaks blasphemies? Or we could say, praise God that he gives grace. That he forgave and healed the paralytic. We should be people people of grace who are absolutely thankful for what God has given us in Christ. We weren't looking for salvation, but salvation came to us, just like this paralytic. Because if that's not true, you wouldn't be here today. Sermon in a sentence, we have been forgiven by God's grace alone, in Christ Jesus alone, and we must tell others about Jesus' power to forgive sinners. The greatest need for humanity is salvation, forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given to us. You've purchased us not with gold and silver, not even through animal sacrifices, but you've purchased us and redeemed us through the precious, valuable blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for him. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your word that is always right. Thank you for being gracious to us. You are worthy. In Christ we pray. Amen.